Well, expecting your first baby uh, can be a time of great uncertainty and trepidation and confusion. And this is why many people turn to the classic book that's usually given to first-time expectant mothers, What to Expect When You're Expecting. How many ladies have read that? Yeah, how many husbands had to read that too? I had to read that too, yeah. Um, well, this book was first released in 1984. The New York Times bestseller has now sold more than 17 million copies, and that's just those that are sold. It's also traditionally a book that you re-gift to other people. After you've been a first-time parent, you kind of know what to expect, and um, so it gets lent out a lot. It gets uh, handed down to different people, and so at least 17 million copies are in circulation. Over 90% of pregnant women in America who read books on pregnancy have read this book, over 90% of them. And yet there are many who find the book quite unhelpful. Um, and in fact, some feel that it makes things worse because rather than focusing on the wonder of the fetal de development, it focuses on all the things that could go wrong and the complications, which sometimes make people even more afraid than they were before. So uh, online there's a little community of haters of the book and they give it a nickname when they talk about it. The two of the most popular nicknames are what to freak out about when you are expecting and another one, what to expect if you want to develop an eating disorder. <laughs> but the book remains popular and it remains in print. Um, people are curious about the unknown and uh, it's a big thing that's happening and so you want to know what other people think about it. Everyone has an opinion on what to expect when you're expecting. Um, this is in its fourth edition at the moment. The, the, it keeps getting updated. The latest update has to do with diet. Um, it's uh, no longer so much against uh, wheat and gluten and those things as it used to be and it keeps changing. Uh, there's now information about uh, can you color your hair while you're pregnant and can you use Botox? Like, like that's the first thing on your mind when you're expecting, but anyway. Um, it's including a section now for carrying twins, triplets, and quads because uh, the number of twins has increased um, at least 100% and the number of what they call um, twinned multiples, just meaning two boys and then two girls, that's up 400%. And so there's chapters about that kind of thing. Um, there's even a chapter about dads, for the dads to read, about their hormonal changes during their wife's pregnancy. Um, I can only imagine that has to do with cortisol and stress. Uh, but anyway, I haven't, I haven't read that chapter in the new edition. Um, and the reason for the success of this book is that there are some things in life, like having a baby, that you just, you, you don't know what to expect when you're expecting it. And so it, it's helpful if people can talk about it and help it until it actually happens. This doesn't stop people from being intensely curious and having opinions and sharing opinions. And in the same way, we'll see in Scripture, the nation of Israel was expecting a kingdom, but they didn't quite know what to expect when they were expecting the kingdom. And so that didn't stop people from having opinions about it and debating it and sharing those opinions. And this debate is still going on all these centuries later. What is the kingdom of God going to be like? What do we mean when we're talking about the kingdom of God and people pray for kingdom come? And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. You can turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we're going to start. It's going to be a topical study tonight. We're going to be bouncing around the scriptures a little bit. And we're going to start near the beginning. At the beginning, I would say. Now, while you're turning there, I want you to feed me the rest of this line. Not if you've been coming to our Wednesday night services, but if you haven't. Um, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's next? Thy kingdom come. 
And in the Matthew version, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the Wednesday crowd will know that Luke's is a little bit different. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask it this way. How many people have never prayed that prayer? Yeah, exactly. We've all prayed that prayer. We've all prayed that prayer dozens of times. I, myself, have prayed that prayer over a thousand times, maybe several thousand times, because the school that I went to, we prayed it every single morning. And, you know, you just switch off your brain, and you think about what homework you have to do, but you can still say the prayer. Um, and it didn't really occur to me until I got to seminary and started learning about the kingdom of God that I have prayed thousands of times, may thy kingdom come, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I have no idea what that means. Um, and I had to study that. I had to learn about it, and, and, and maybe you too. If, if I suddenly said, guess what, guys? Today is the day God's going to answer that prayer. His kingdom is coming. What exactly would you have in mind? What do you think is happening? Do you think that Jesus is coming back that day? Is that what it means? If that is what you think, that would put you in the vast minority of Christians in church history to think that that's what that means. So what, what does it mean? Um, well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, I just want to stress that I'm going to give you four main views at some point tonight, and this is not a salvation issue. If you don't hold this view, you can be wrong on certain things if you don't agree with me, right? Um, uh, you don't, this isn't a matter to divide over. This is not something to pick a fight with another Christian at work. In fact, this is just for your own understanding as you pray, except for one thing. I told you before that um, when Kim and I went out on our first date, I covered this in our first date, what her view of the kingdom is and the church in Israel and how all that fleshes out because I simply could not be married to somebody who didn't have the right view. But anyway, um, unless you're planning on getting married to another Christian, you really don't need to bring this up in conversation. This is just so that you know what you're praying when you pray, thy kingdom come. So the issue boils down to how each view tries to explain how Jesus' coming in the New Testament fulfills promises in the Old Testament about the kingdom. So all four of these views are going to try to explain what about the promises in the Old Testament and what they said, and how are these unfolded in the New Testament. So the classic kingdom promise starts in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's why I had you turn there. So to remind you of the context of 2 Samuel 7, uh, David is king, he has established himself as king, he has fought many wars, and now he announces that he wants to, well, he actually asks the prophet, and the prophet says, yes, um, can he build a temple for God? Up until now, the Ark of the Covenant has been in a tabernacle in the wilderness, it has been living in Obed-Eden's house, it's been living in Kiryat Yarim, it's been to Shiloh, it's kind of moving around, but it doesn't have a permanent place that is worthy of, of uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and so David wants to build it. God says to Nathan, you shouldn't have told David yes, go back and tell him no. Um, and, and he says, I want Solomon to build this house. Solomon is going to be uber wealthy. He's going to be able to build a way bigger and nicer house, A. B, he's going to be a man of peace. He's going to have full peace during his reign. You're a man of bloodshed. You're always at war, and I want a man of peace to build my uh, temple. And so, but don't worry, it's not all bad news, David. You're not going to build me a house, but guess what? I'm going to build you a house. And by house, he means a dynasty, a multi-generation dynasty of power and fame and uh, rulership. And so that is the prophecy that we now call the Davidic covenant because God promises it. He makes a covenant. And so that's what we find here in 2 Samuel 7. And let me just read for you from verse 12. 
when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God through the prophet speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity or sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this is the Davidic covenant. This is a promise that God made. It is an unconditional covenant. There's, he's not asking anything of David. He's just telling David this is what he's doing. And the, the main point of the covenant is that I am going to take it upon myself, God says, to establish your line of kings um, through your offspring. And the, the near fulfillment of that would be Solomon. And then all of the Davidic kings from then on. And David doesn't know anything else about Jesus yet. We do, but don't jump there yet. Um, and, and this is the promise. And did you notice how many times God used the word forever? He keeps saying forever. This is going to be established forever. Your throne will be here forever. And so the, the nation of Israel understood that David's line had this promise from God that it would be the permanent ruling line of Israel. Now, that word forever can be confusing. Um, at the very least, it means till the end of human history. The problem is, well, let me ask you this. Is one of David's rulers on the throne in Jerusalem ruling over Israel right now? Is Prime Minister Netanyahu a son of David? <laughs> no. So what did God mean when he said it'll happen forever? Either it would mean an unbroken line where there's always somebody sitting on the throne and it never stops, or it means that the line may be broken here and there, but eventually it'll be established to a point where it goes on forever, even if that's only through one ruler. You can see where this is going because we know the New Testament. But at the time, they just thought, okay, well, David's offspring needs to rule in this unconditional covenant. Now, so that establishes this idea that there's a kingdom of God through his king on earth. And the king is David. Up until now, there have been no kings over Israel. Well, you know, except Saul. Don't worry about Saul. He's just kind of a hiccup in the timeline here. You know, he's, uh, Moses wasn't a king. Joshua wasn't a king. The judges weren't kings. Saul, he was the people's choice. He wins the people's choice award. But God soon shows that I, I don't look at the outside. I look at the inside. And God chooses David and anoints him. And from this point on, David's line is the one that God wants. As prophesied that it would come through the line of Judah. Right, not Benjamin like Saul. So God is in control of all of this. Now, David had a kingdom on earth, and it was Israel, and everything was fine, and then Solomon expanded its borders, and there was peace, and everything was wonderful, and Solomon built a, a massive temple, and everything was great, but Rehoboam comes and kind of splits the kingdom, and then there's, you know, Jeroboam, and then there's a bunch of bad kings, and God starts warning the people, if you don't do what I told you to do, I'm going to kick you out of the kingdom. 
it's called exile. And, and Jeremiah comes along and prophesies, listen, it's coming. You're going to be taken out of the kingdom. You're going to be kicked out for 70 years, and then you're going to come back. And that's exactly what happened. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's army from Babylon comes and takes over the kingdom of Israel. And they occupy, and they kick the Israelites out. They kill them, or they take them to Babylon in exile. And the Israelites stay there in exile for, guess how long? 70 years. Now, what makes you think it's 70 years? Well, because it said so. And you think, well, duh. No, no, no. That's going to become important. Because there's other predictions of how long the kingdom is that people say, that's not what that means. <laughs> um, but the first time the, it said you're going to be out of the kingdom was for 70 years. It was a literal 70-year period. Daniel's reading Jer Jeremiah and says, oh, um, I've been around here about 70 years. You know, I'm about 83, and I came here when I was 13. Um, so... We're getting to the end of it, so he starts praying, and sure enough, that's what happens. The kingdom comes back to Israel during that time. The Israelites go back. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuild Jerusalem and the wall, etc., etc. But then, uh, about 500 years later or so, you've got uh, 63 BC, the Romans conquer, and now they occupy the kingdom. So, so, they, so Israel had a kingdom, and then they got kicked out, then they came back, and they had a kingdom again. And now the Romans, because the Babylonians were ruling it, you know, and the Medo-Persians were ruling it, and, and now the Romans are ruling it. So the Israelites are in this situation, and they keep wanting to get rid of the Romans, and then Jesus comes along, and they call him the son of David, and they want him to get rid of the Romans. Why? Because the promise is that the kingdom of heaven will be on earth, and the, God's kingdom will be here on earth in Israel, and the son of David will rule over it. So that's what the Jews were expecting. That's what they were expecting when they were expecting a kingdom. That the Messiah would reign in Jerusalem, that he would rule physically on earth, and that once he was here, that kingdom would never be taken away from them. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. And it was a great disappointment. That's probably the reason why Judas lost faith in him and handed him over to the Pharisees. But the Jews always clung to this promise. This promise that was made to David has, is, gets restated dozens of times. It's a very important promise. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Psalm 132.11. Yahweh swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Unconditional. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. Here's another example that this time of the year you're going to read on Christmas cards. Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Have you, around Christmas time, doesn't that word government sometimes kind of, that's kind of a strange word to throw out there. No, this is the Davidic promise being reiterated. The government, the actual kingdom, will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, from this time forth and for evermore. So you'll see this. Once you start looking for it, you see after the Davidic covenant, people keep referring back to this covenant. We're going to have this kingdom. We're going to have this kingdom. And then in Luke 1, 32, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, speaking of Jesus, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, forever. And his kingdom there will be, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in Matthew 21, 9, the people shout, Hosanna to the son of David. 
and they put down palm branches, and he's riding a donkey. And if you go and read carefully through Samuel, donkeys are related with the Davidic line. That's why it's so comical that Saul can't find his donkeys. He's always looking for his donkeys, but David has a donkey. And um, when David's son comes, he's going to be riding the donkey. And everyone's like, this is the son of David. This is the son of David. And then Jesus dies. And the Romans are still in charge. And Israel's kingdom's not there. But then three days later, he's alive again. And now everyone's like, no way. He's going to do it. And for the next 40 days, the book of Acts tells us he was teaching them about the kingdom. And yet, after all that time, when he's about to go up to heaven at his ascension, as he's about to leave, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They've got this one-track mind. When's the kingdom coming? And by the kingdom coming, it means you're going to give the, the physical kingdom here on earth to Israel. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, not yet. Don't worry about the timing. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You want the kingdom? Don't worry about the kingdom. Go be witnesses all over the world. I'll take care of the kingdom. And people have been debating ever since, what does that mean? Does that mean there is no kingdom? Well, it can't be that. There's promises. Does that mean this is the kingdom? This part that where we go witness and we spread it kind of spiritually and not politically? Does it mean that we go and spread things spiritually and get people saved and then Jesus will come back when we do that? Or does it mean we'll try and, and we will fail but they will come back and do it? Like what does that mean? So welcome to the four views. I'll give you the four views. Here we are. The first view. This is the first and, and of course all of these views have sub views and there's a lot more but these, these are the main ones. Um, the first major view is the theocratic government. A theocratic government, as in not a democratic government run by people or a monocratic government run by a monarch or king, but a theocratic government run by God himself. So this is, tends to be a post-millennialist view. If you're not sure what that means, don't, we'll cover that on Wednesday. Uh, on, uh, sorry, next Sunday night. Um, a post-millennialist view, uh, there's a physical kingdom this is what the theocratic government is waiting for, a physical kingdom which must be established by us, by Christians, before Jesus comes back. So that's the basic idea is that we set up a government on earth, a Christian government, and then when that government is set up, God rules through that Christian government. Uh, the Crusaders thought this too, by the way. They thought that that's the kingdom of heaven, that they have to expand this political government. And so they got armies and went and killed people who weren't Christians because eventually you'll only have people who are Christians. And then you've got your whole world full of Christians. Today, people don't do that as much. Um, they don't do that at all, really. But they, what the way Christians today do it is they, they function through politics. How cool would it be to have a Christian president and everyone in the Senate be a true believer and all of your congressmen and women, true believers, 
or right down to local level, the whole country, and then the world. And then Jesus will come back. Okay, I mean, don't hold your breath. <laughs> um, and one of the major problems with that view is that that would take a very long time, right? So Jesus can't come back till it happens. So is Jesus coming back this week? Absolutely not. You think he's coming back, um, you know, around about our next elections? So far, none of the candidates are, you know, anyway. Um, so these views, uh, within this, there's a, a Christian reconstruction and theonomy. You might know those terms. Um, they, overlap, they overlap considerably, but let me just read you the difference here. Christian reconstruction refers to the broader theological and cultural program of uniting culture more explicitly to Christian moral foundations. So the idea of a Christian reconstructionist is that they want to affect the culture, Christian artists, Christian music. Maybe you've heard of Jesus Culture. It's a band by Bethel and Bill Johnson, who's a heretic, by the way. Um, and we don't sing Bethel songs in our church because of the satanic influence over the ministry that produces those songs, even though some of them, I guess, could be harmless, but yuck. Um, so that's Christian Reconstruction, is this Jesus Culture Band wants all songs to be more Christianized and everybody love Christian music and love Christian art and love Christian television. And eventually the culture will be programmed according to um, Christian moral foundations. Then there's theonomy, which is also part of this theocratic kind of view. Theonomy um, seeks to apply the civil law of the Mosaic Covenant to the contemporary civil government. In other words, they want our actual laws in America and eventually the whole world to be the law of Moses in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, starting with the Ten Commandments, and those exact laws. So uh, killing people for adultery, for example, would be one of those laws. And you can think in, in church history, little pockets of Christians started to do this. Uh, you all had to read, I'm sure, we had to read it in South Africa in school, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Remember that? Scarlet Letter. It's a book. And some of the teenagers are like, yeah, I got to read that now. I got to write an exam on it. No, that's an important book. That's a really important book because it gives us a snapshot of what can go wrong when people get their, their view of the kingdom wrong. And so they have in this town the idea that, well, if you commit adultery, uh, we're not allowed to execute you, but we'll do as much as we can and put the Scarlet Letter on you and shun you and all this kind of thing. And the Salem witch trials, oh, if you're a necromancer, we read today in Leviticus uh, 11 and around verse 44 about don't use mediums and necromancers, and if you do, put them to death. Oh, okay, good. Well, Salem witch trials, let's kill them because they're witches. Um, well, that's, not a, that's trying to make your civil government line up with the Old Testament law. And so there's a lot of Christians who still believe that that's what we need to do today. Uh, start getting towards that wherever we can. You're like, where do they get this? Well, here's some verses they use. Luke 19, verse 12. Jesus told a parable. Uh, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. They say, there you go. Jesus in, in the parable talks about a nobleman, that must be him, going off and comes back to receive his kingdom. And that's what they believe Jesus did. He left, we get the kingdom going, he comes back to receive the kingdom. The only problem is, how do we know that the nobleman in the parable is Jesus and that he's talking about this? Spoiler alert, it's not, and he isn't. Um, Matthew 13, 33, he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid 
in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So the kingdom is a physical thing that starts small and spreads large. Well, you can still have the principle of start small and spread large without it being a physical kingdom, a geographic political kingdom. But anyway, those are the types of verses that they use. The problem is that theonomy implies that the church's faithfulness is measured by the culture's adoption of Christian norms. I'm quoting from an article there. Um, theonomy implies that the church's faithfulness is measured by the culture's adoption of Christian norms. In other words, is the church doing a good job today? Is most of America and most of the world starting to line up with our morals? Okay, so we're not doing a good job then. You see, and nowhere in Scripture do you see that the faithfulness of the church is judged by the culture adopting the church's morals. And yet that's what this view teaches. And so at the moment, the church is doing a really bad job according to them. And they're, they're okay with that because in their mind, this can take 3,000 more years. There's certainly more Christians on earth than there were, you know, 1,000 years ago. That's true. There's more Christians in China than they, uh, now than there were just uh, 100 years ago. So they say, you see, it's working. It's working. Just give it time. Give it a few more thousand years. Could Jesus return this week? Never. So that's one of the, the other problems. Scripture also tells us in 2 Timothy 3.1, understand this, that in the last times, there will come times of difficulty. People's love will grow cold. Things will go from bad to worse. The scriptures predict that. Now, the big problem with this view is that it doesn't account for the many verses that describe the spiritual aspects of the kingdom, and they focus on all the physical aspects. And the other big problem is that it destroys imminency. In other words, Jesus can't return at any time. Okay, so let's look at the second major view. I think it's pretty safe to disregard that one. The second major view is, let's just call it the purely spiritual kingdom, as opposed to um, a mix, which we'll see later. So there's a purely physical kingdom, the theocracy, and then the, another view is that the kingdom is just purely spiritual, and there's no political, there's no physical, there's no geographic manifestation of the kingdom. It's only a spiritual manifestation. It's a very common view among a group called amillennialists. So the previous one was linked to post-millennialism. This one is linked to amillennialism. Come next Sunday, you'll know what those terms mean. Uh, so you can use them in Scrabble. They view the kingdom as a synonym for salvation. So in the purely... The purely um, spiritual view of the kingdom is that whenever the Bible now in the New Testament talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you're close to the kingdom, it always just means being saved, being a Christian. When they pray, thy kingdom come, the previous people, when they pray, thy kingdom come, they mean, you know, we're, we're going to get it that your will is being done here on earth and that your kingdom is established and then you can arrive. When these people pray, thy kingdom come, they mean may the gospel spread and more and more people get saved until you come back. Now, there are many verses that talk about the kingdom as a spiritual view. This is a respectable view, in my opinion. Um, Colossians 1.13, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So God, the Father, has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's already happened. So that's talking about salvation. So that's a good verse for that one. Luke 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's talking to Pilate. And Pilate says, 
Are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My serv- if it, my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So they say, you see, Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Romans. He didn't come to establish a kingdom and rule from Jerusalem in this world. He's talking about his kingdom being spiritual. And I think that's exactly what he means when he's talking to Pilate. So I think they're right there. Mark 12, 34 When Jesus saw that this man answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's talking about a person who's nearly saved. And he refers to you being almost saved as near the kingdom of God. You're you're almost saved. So he's speaking spiritually. And there's many other verses like that. So this this is a good view. It's a possible view. But the problem is that it doesn't deal in my opinion, adequately with the many other verses in the Bible that do talk about a physical aspect to the kingdom that never gets explained away in Scripture. Isaiah 11 is an example. So the main reason I don't um, subscribe to this view is that they have to use a different hermeneutic for different passages. Now, what I mean by that is The way I interpret the Bible, the way I've taught you to interpret the Bible, is that every passage in the Bible you interpret in a consistent manner. In other words, you look at the context. Who's it been written to? Who's writing it? Why are they writing? What happened in the verses above? What happened in the next verses? What does the natural reading of the language mean? Is there any reason to think this is a metaphor? If it is, what is it a metaphor for? So you do a proper study an exegesis on what the passage means, and then you draw your theology from that. You do not say, well, I believe this about my theology, like the kingdom is all spiritual, and here's a verse that says it's physical, so this verse must be interpreted differently so that it means what I need it to mean. I've taught you not to do that, and this view does that all the time. Uh, I'll give you one example. Does Does this prophecy about what the kingdom will be like sound like it could be spiritual or physical. Isaiah 11, 7. And the cow, well, I'll start in verse 6 because it's the one you know. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the roots of Jesse, Jesus, shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria and Egypt and Patros, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so when you read the description, Isaiah's description of the kingdom to come, he says it's going to be a place where the animals aren't killing each other anymore, um, like it was in, in Eden, before the fall, before there was death. Even the lion's going to eat straw, and a baby will be there playing with a snake, and it won't bite him. And um, you're going to say, so there's cows, there's goats, there's lambs, there's wolves, there's lions, there's snakes, there's babies. 
okay, well, I've already decided that the kingdom has to be fully spiritual, so let me change the way I'm going to read that to mean this is spiritual. The lion is your sin, and the lamb is uh, your sinlessness, and they will now be together. Well, no, that doesn't work. Uh, let's figure out a way that we can say it so that it means what I need it to mean. Now, I'm being a little harsh on them, a little facetious, but you should read Amillennial's commentaries when they do this. It's not acceptable hermeneutics. They, they just say, well, this is just a picture. All that Isaiah is doing here is he's talking about a picture of peace. It's just peace. It doesn't matter about the details. It's just a painting. It's like a, just a, his impression of peace. Peace in the church. You go to Micah chapter 4 and it talks about, you know, world peace and how the nations will beat their plows, uh, their, their weapons, their swords into plowshares, and there'll be world peace. Well, that just talks about peace in the church. How many churches do you know? <laughs> Is there peace in the church? Well, that's going to be, when the kingdom comes, there'll be peace in everyone's hearts. Anyone ever been anxious about anything? Okay, well, that can't mean that. This is talking about a state of world peace. And so you have to change what it means. And, and in all of the passages that talk about a physical um, component, the land promise to Abraham, the fact that he has to be in Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is your heart. The land is the world. Um, peace is the peace we have with God. The nation streaming to the signal, um, standing in Jerusalem, who's going to rule over them. With it. That just means sinners will get saved uh, in the kingdom. You have to do violence to what the words actually mean to come up with this view. So let's move on to the next view. This is a view that is, uh, I'm just going to call it the final coming of Christ. It's the view that um, the kingdom is established when Jesus comes back and he, he turns, uh, he, he ushers in the eternal state, is the way they would say it, so that now we're in heaven. In other words, anytime we're talking about the kingdom, we're talking about heaven. So all of these prophecies that aren't fulfilled spiritually here will be fulfilled in the future. Where are they going to be fulfilled? They're going to be filled in heaven. So this is another common um, amillennialist view. Partial preterists tend to hold this view. When they pray, thy kingdom come, they mean God's, God brings history to a close and it, the eternal state starts, heaven starts. Um, the previous people, the purely spiritual people, when they, they pray, may thy kingdom come, again, they just mean, well, his kingdom has come. That prayer has been answered. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, spiritually, in the lives of believers. When these people pray, may thy kingdom come, they mean, may Jesus come and start eternity and, and wipe out all the bad guys and set things up. And again, this one's getting closer to the truth. To the truth. Closer to the view I hold. Um, <laughs> but it's more balanced. It's one of the more widely held views in church history, and it's also a very respectable view. Um, what it does well is it admits that the prophecies of the physical kingdom are not yet fulfilled in a spiritual way. So it's not doing what the previous people are doing, where they're just trying to, oh, this doesn't fit my view, so I'm going to make it spiritual. This part does fit my view, so I'm going to keep it. This part doesn't, so I'm going to make it spiritual. They don't do that. They're saying, hmm, this part that talks about the kingdom being physical in Jerusalem with the king there and the nations coming and, and the cow and the lamb and the baby and the snake, and that sounds pretty physical, so that's all going to happen in heaven. Well, that's good. At least they're not changing their hermeneutic. The problem is that the description of the kingdom includes, in just a couple of places, things that can't happen in heaven. 
I'll give you an example. Isaiah, well, for one, you just read one. Um, Isaiah 11, there's a baby in heaven. That would change our theology a little bit, okay? Um, Isaiah 50, 65, verse 19. 65, 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So the, this is one verse. It's kind of a strange verse. And when I've spoken to friends of mine who are amillennialists, who hold this view, I take them to this verse. And one of them, who's like the most rabid amillennialist I've ever met, said to me, yeah, that's the one verse I can't explain. And I'm like, yes, because I've got no verses I can't explain. Um, you've got, even if you've got one verse you can't explain in your system, your system's got a little crack in it, right? And this one is talking about the kingdom and what it's going to be like, and there's a baby in it. And this baby, if it dies, no babies will live only a few days. They will all live to an old age. And in fact, if you die at 100 years old in the kingdom, that's considered accursed. That's considered bad luck. And there's not going to be an old man who dies before he reaches the fullness of his days even. So there's old men in heaven, there's babies in heaven, there's young people dying at the age of 100. What does that sound like to you? Is there any other time in history where people live to be more than 100 years old? Yeah, clo closer, closer to the garden, before the flood. People were living hundreds of years old. Methuselah died at nearly 1,000 years old. So there's this reversion back to the way things were before entropy took over and before aging got so bad and, and yet people are still dying. So you can't have that in heaven. You can't have babies in heaven. You can't have dead people in heaven. So what do you do with this? Is there any view that allows for all of these passages to work? My view. Um, so... And before we get there, let me read one more verse that, does, that even these people have to kind of do gymnastics around. Then I saw, Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven in his key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he, uh, sorry, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's the first time we're told the length of the kingdom. Verse 4, they, the martyrs, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come to, out to deceive the nations. So they have to say at this one point, a thousand years can't be a thousand years because if, if the solution is the final coming of Christ ushers in the eternal state, it doesn't end. It's eternal. So a thousand years, they say, just means the perfect number. The perfect amount of time. You can go read Millard Erickson's systematic theology on this passage. And he says, well, everybody knows seven is the perfect number. And three is often used in scripture as a good number too. Holy, holy, holy. And when you add three and seven, you get the ultimate perfect number, which is ten. And when you cube it, you get a thousand, which is the ultimate, ultimate perfect number. And I'm like... What? There's no way that anybody reading that prophecy in John's day was like, yeah, this is definitely 7 plus 3 cubed, means forever. 
7 plus 3 cubed for always means forever in every passage. No, it doesn't mean that anywhere ever. And they'll say, yes, but God says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and that means all the hills. I don't know about that. Anyway, um, the problem with this still is that at the end of this period, Satan gets released and gets to deceive people again, so it can't be heaven. And it can't mean forever because at the end of it, there's another resurrection, and at the end of it, Satan gets to do something. So they'll be like, yeah, we don't know what to do with that either. Literally, what they'll say to you is, yeah, but that's only one passage in the Bible that says it's a thousand years. Yeah, it says it three times in three verses, and it's a pretty important chapter in the Bible. It's the one that tells us how the world ends. So I got that in my pocket, but anyway, don't get me started. Okay, so we have a couple more minutes. Let me just give you the view that I hold. Maybe I've got the wrong view. <laughs> it's called the already not yet kingdom. I mean, that's what I call it. It's the way I understand it. Already not yet. That's the fourth view. It's a spiritual kingdom that has already begun in pres at the present. So there are already spiritual aspects to the kingdom that have been ushered in, that were ushered in by the first coming of Jesus. His death on the cross, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual, there is a spiritual element to the kingdom, and it is here already. But there are also physical elements to the kingdom that were promised that have not yet been fulfilled. And so the kingdom has an already aspect and it has a not yet aspect, and that's where we're living. There's already the spiritual conquest of Jesus and the peace in our hearts and the ruling over the church. Sure, my kingdom is not of this world. You're close to the kingdom. Um, the kingdom will spread like a mustard seed. This kingdom will spread like leaven. All of that, absolutely, we are there. But that's not all that there is. There's still an element that's not there. And that is the part that when Jesus comes back, he establishes for, guess how long I think it's going to last? A thousand years. A literal thousand years. An actual thousand years on earth. Jesus reigning in Jerusalem. Satan is bound by a chain put in an abyss for a thousand years. And during that time, there's a partial reversal of the curse. People start living long lives. I think people born during the thousand years may live to be right old, not die at all during the thousand years and live all the, if some will die. If you die and you've only been around a hundred of those thousand years, it's going to be like, oh, well, that's bad luck. You're considered accursed at that point. Um, there are still sinners, just like Isaiah 11 says there will be. Um, there are babies, there are people being born. And it lasts for a thousand years. This is a view that uh, if the others were post-millennial and amillennial, this is a premillennial view. Um, progressive dispensational premillennialism is the technical term. Come back next week. Um, so it teaches that the gospel has already taken root and affects society right now to a certain degree, but unfortunately, I believe the Bible teaches eventually the world will prevail. The gospel will not take over the world. We will not make everybody a Christian. And that's what, that's what they say is a big weakness of our view is that it's pessimistic. Is it though? Because what we believe is, yes, the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. The church is going to continue to strengthen. It's just not going to take over the whole world. But Jesus is going to come back and fix the problem all in a moment and it could happen tonight. So that's not pessimistic. The other view has got to wait a long time for Jesus to come Jesus could come, according to this view, at any time. And there's lots of verses in the New Testament that say Jesus could come like a thief in the night at any time, right? So here are some verses that are already verses. 
uh, Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Same verse as the spiritual people. We say, yeah, that is a spiritual reality. John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Absolutely. But then there's these not yet verses. Like Matthew 26, 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Wait, I thought you said the kingdom of heaven. No. The spiritual part of the kingdom of heaven is here. The part where I get to drink wine with you in my Father's kingdom, that's coming in the future. Uh, Luke 11, 2, when we pray, may your kingdom come. And as Matthew says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a way, and we looked at this last, on Wednesday, in some depth when you're praying for the kingdom, there is a spiritual spread of the kingdom right now. That's what you're praying for. May your kingdom come in my life. May me make, make me more mature and, and do your will on earth as it is done in heaven. And may it spread spiritually from person to person so more and more people get saved and more and more people are doing your will as it's done in heaven. But we're also praying, may you come and fix this place once and for all where your will is actually being done all over the earth physically right here. And that's what we're praying for. The strength of this view is that it fits all the verses in the Bible without compromising on any of them. It, it does justice to the book of Revelation's say, um, uh, information that it's going to be a thousand years. It all fits together well. And the weakness is that it's pessimistic. I just personally don't feel pessimistic about it. I feel very optimistic about it. To me, when I look at the news and it looks like the world's going, getting worse and worse, I'm not like, no, 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 the church is messing up. I'm like, yeah, that's what the Bible says. That means Jesus is coming back even sooner. So I'm not pessimistic. But even if it is, so what? It's what the Bible says. The other weakness that people accuse us of is they would say this creates, in order for the system to work, it creates scenarios which are too far-fetched. And when you ask for examples, they'll say, well, according to the system, you have mortals and immortals living together in the same kingdom. Because you've got, for the thousand years, you've got babies being born, you've got, they still have to get saved, so some of them are sinners. That's why there's an army at the end of that time that rises up against Jesus. But you also have the martyrs and we saints ruling and reigning for a thousand years with Christ. So we've been resurrected, there's a first resurrection, then there's a second resurrection. So they're like, if this all works together, you actually have a thousand years of us ruling, immortal, raised from the dead, resurrection believers, living with Jesus, and a whole population of mortal people being born and going about their business, and, and that's just too far-fetched. And my response is, yeah, but in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus says, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom glory. And the very next thing that happens is he goes onto the Mount of Transfiguration and gives three people a glimpse of his kingdom glory. Guess who's there? Immortal people, Moses and Elijah. With mortal people, Peter and James and John. That's a glimpse of the kingdom and Jesus in his glory. So I, I don't think that's too far-fetched. Maybe it sounds a little sci-fi for you but I think it works. They also say, you know, having animals become herbivores and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, haven't you read the rest of the Bible? God can do anything with animals. He can stick them on an ark. He can make them talk. Balaam's donkey. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. 
So I just don't find those objections too objectionable. Um, and why do we insist that there's this thousand years and not just heaven? Why, why does it have to, that's what they say. You're making it too complicated. Why can't it be just Jesus comes back and he ushers in the eternal state? And the answer is because there's all these Old Testament prophecies that don't make sense if you have that eternal state. God had a plan that he wanted on earth in Eden. Satan tried to stop it. God isn't going to plan B now. He's going to revert to plan A. He's going to make it happen. He's going to bring about what he intended, where, where he is living among his people, where his people are doing what he told them to do, where our relationship with animals is right, and our relationship with each other is right, and our relationship with subduing the earth is right. And we make the whole world an Eden. And we resist Satan and his temptation. And he's actually removed from all of that time. And this is the, this is the perfect world that God wanted that we've never, ever experienced. Nobody's ever experienced it except for Adam and Eve. God didn't give up on that plan. That was his good creation. His very good creation. And he's going to restore it. Now, just as I close, if you're feeling I'm not quite crystal clear on which one's right, Clint seems very convinced of the fourth one, but I don't know. Don't worry. The apostles themselves weren't quite sure, right? In Acts chapter 1 where they said, is this the time that you restore the kingdom to Israel? And what did Jesus tell them? It's the same thing I tell myself, the same thing I'm telling you. Don't worry about the timing. Get busy with the work. And the work is be a witness for Christ. Because we all agree, all Christians agree on one thing. Jesus is coming back. And you need to be on his side when he does. And you might die before he does, and then you definitely need to be on his side before that happens. And so your job is to evangelize, to grow in holiness, and to spread the kingdom here on earth, and pray and anticipate the final coming of Christ, where he will set all things right. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now there's three views on how he comes back, and if you want those, come back next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this really is a, a meaty portion of doctrine that we have uh, tried to, to chew tonight, and so I just pray that you would help us um, understand this through your spirit, the parts that will help us change our lives, that we know you are in control of all things. We know that you are coming back, Lord Jesus, and we look forward to that day. And so we pray with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.